Chapter 3. Training Period in Chicago, 1971-1973 through 1973. Within three weeks of our move from Michigan to Oak Park, Doree had begun working as a counselor on an adolescent unit of a nearby psychiatric hospital. Her income and our careful budgeting would sustain our household as long as it would take for me to complete my years of training and eventually secure a playing job. What a pleasure it was to now be able to take lessons with the master every two weeks and to have those lessons involve a journey of only a few blocks within the same suburb instead of a round trip of either 500 or 1,000 miles from two states away. In addition, hearing the CSO in live performances now required only a 20-minute ride downtown on the elevated train. Since I'd become very dissatisfied with the small, toy-like sound of my similar piccolo, Bud offered to me, on a long-term loan basis, the use of the prototype Yamaha combination A-B-flat piccolo he had earlier shown me. He had assisted considerably in the development of this large-toned instrument, which had a valve section from a medium-large C-trumpet with short pipes and a miniature bell section. This horn, which was not yet even production in Japan, was equipped with a standard third slide, as well as a replacement elongated third slide, which could be installed as needed for the low F tone, which sometimes appeared in the Baroque literature. Along with this horn, he also loaned me various Bach mouthpieces to try with it, after I had chosen from the batch the 1D and 7E models, each with a 117 piccolo backbore, and had bought new versions of them, he loaned me a tapered jeweler's reamer. I used this handy tool to slightly open the throat on the new piccolo mouthpieces, as well as the throat on each of the Bach mouthpieces that I used on my large horns. Each of these consisted of a Model 1 interchangeable screw-off rim, a 1C cup, a 25 throat, and either a standard or an enlarged 24 Schmidt orchestra backbore. Bud also advised me on another improvement in my equipment for playing the Haydn and Hummel concertos. I purchased from the Schilke company a large E-flat sliding bell in raw brass for my Schilke D E-flat horn. This was actually the type A bell that was usually built for installation on certain B-flat trumpets. In addition to providing lessons, equipment, and advice, Bud also assisted me in arranging some playing outlets in the Chicago region. On his recommendation, I was immediately taken into the Oak Park Symphony as the lead player by its conductor, Perry Crafton, a violinist in the CSO. This proved to be an excellent turn of events since Betty DeSaro Eilers, a longtime fixture on the Chicago scene who had been the first trumpet in the Oak Park Ensemble before I arrived, generously began sending gigs my way. She also turned over a number of her young trumpet students to me. For the next two years, I would travel weekly to the homes of a handful of young students in the Oak Park area to give them lessons. The few dollars that these sessions brought in contributed little to our meager family coffer, but they did allow for regular purchase of CSO recordings. More importantly, this very limited amount of teaching helped me to fix the concepts of the master all the more clearly in my head by explaining and passing on those concepts to the students. On one memorable occasion, when a young boy was absent at the time of my arrival, his father took the lesson in his place, although the man had not played since high school. One of the students whom Betty DeSaro turned over to me, the son of a United Church of Christ minister, would prove to be a particularly important contact in the following months and years. Another arrangement by Bud, this time with his colleague Gordon Peters, head percussionist of the CSO, led to my playing lead with Elmhurst Symphony, which Gordon conducted. When I traveled to Elmhurst for the spring concert, I shared a ride with a pianist whose husband was the principal of a Lutheran school in Oak Park. Again, this particular contact would become one of 
considerable importance to me that spring. The crucial object to which I refer was my quest for an appropriate place to practice each day. There was no chance of my practicing in our apartment building, a large multi-unit structure with poor sound insulation between the units and between the floors. During our first two weeks in Oak Park, I practiced for a couple hours each afternoon in the unheated basement of Graham Capantis' four-unit apartment building. None of the other tenants were home during the daytime hours to hear me. However, when the janitor finally discovered me hard at work there one day, he insisted that I find somewhere else to practice since I was not an official resident. Seeking a remedy for this problem, I visited all of the Catholic churches in the entire area, asking each pastor if I could practice in their school building each day after the students had departed in return for my playing at church services as often as requested at no charge. All of the priests summarily turned down my offered exchange except for one. However, in the arrangements with this particular parish, St. Edmund's, I had to be ready to enter the school the moment the last of the students departed, since the doors automatically locked behind them. In addition, the parish would not grant me access to the building on weekends. On Saturdays and Sundays, I was obliged to practice as best I could in our apartment with a cup mute. After enduring this unacceptable situation for a few months, I happened to ride to an Elmhurst Symphony concert with the wife of a Lutheran school principal. The following day, at her instigation, we made arrangements for me to practice in their building after school hours on weekdays and any time on weekends, letting myself in with a key in return for my playing at their church services on all major occasions. Entirely by coincidence, this school was located directly across the alley from the garage and backyard of Bud and Avis Herseth. This situation led to one of the most treasured compliments of my entire career. One day when I arrived for a lesson with Bud, Avis told me that she had been working in the kitchen one day earlier that week and had thought that she was hearing her husband practicing downstairs in the basement. However, she eventually realized that he was not even home and that those familiar trumpet sounds were emanating from the school building across the alley. I thoroughly enjoyed the excellent arrangements at this school for several months until one hot and steamy summer evening when I was practicing with a window open for ventilation. A band of neighbors suddenly burst in, confiscated my key to the building, and announced that my practicing days there were over. By coincidence, while I'd been teaching the son of a United Church of Christ minister earlier that very week, the young man had passed on a piece of information from his father. The church board would be pleased to offer me a key to the function rooms attached to their church so that I could practice there any time I wished. Lo and behold, I was very much in need of such a place just a few days later after the Lutherans had had enough and was elated to accept their kind offer. I would practice at this church and play for them on important occasions free of charge during the following two years until my departure for Germany, and again for another three and a quarter years after my return from Germany, until I would eventually become a member of the Chicago Symphony and purchase a home in Oak Park. Again, by complete coincidence, this home of ours would be located directly across the street from that picturesque stone church in my practice room there. During the spring of 1971, the three-tooth bridge at the front of my mouth broke, which required a repair and reinstallation of the unit. Unfortunately, the dentist installed it at a slightly different angle within my mouth compared to its former position. This required some slight readjustments in my playing to accommodate the new position of the three teeth. These adaptations were accomplished in time for me to perform a number of solos with organ accompaniment at the graduation ceremonies of the Illinois Institute of Technology in May. This gig, which took place in Orchestra Hall, 
was my first playing experience in that famous building in which I would soon spend much of my training time and later the bulk of my professional career as well. As my schedule of gigs as a freelance player began to become busier, I developed a standard checklist that I went through upon leaving the apartment each time. Horn, mouthpiece, glasses, mutes, music, stand, reading material, clothing, traveling directions, etc. Often when Dory saw me at the exit door, running through my mental list and checking the contents of my pockets, she would deliver the punchline from an old joke about an elderly priest and his longtime housekeeper. The woman commented to the priest one day that it was so touching to see him making the sign of the cross so reverently with his hand each time before he departed from the rectory, praying for a safe return. He responded, oh no, I'm just checking to make sure I have my spectacles, testicles, wallet and watch. That May, I began my own study of the archaeology of the prehistoric period of the northeastern woodlands region of North America on a full-time schedule, as if I were enrolled in a university doctoral program. While doing this over the course of the following decade, I assembled an extensive research library of books and site excavation reports. In addition, I gradually studied the collections at virtually all of the primary museums, large and small, within the Northeast and Midwest regions of the U.S. During this decade, I also assembled a considerable private collection of prehistoric artifacts. Later, I would switch my focus of study and collecting to the historic era, and eventually develop and expand this interest into a completely new career as a historical researcher and writer. Just as Bud had indicated, these non-musical interests would help a great deal in keeping my musical activities fresh over the years. However, neither he nor I could have foreseen that these avid interests would eventually draw me entirely away from my trumpet-playing career. In June of 1971, I passed the audition for membership in the summer program of the Civic Orchestra of Chicago. This was a four nights per week regimen of sight reading spanning six weeks, which was designed to introduce developing players to a wide array of orchestral literature. This summer program, which also entailed many rehearsals and two different concert performances, provided free passes to the members for lawn admission to CSO concerts at Ravinia Park, the summer home of the orchestra. I also began at this time playing a series of outdoor concerts with the Oak Park Band. Marches were certainly never high on my list of favorite compositions, but the band did add one more ensemble experience to my total training regimen. The absolute high point of the summer was my first opportunity to perform with the Chicago Symphony at Ravinia. Those rehearsals, and finally the performance of Mahler's Second Symphony on June 24th, which represented James Levine's conducting debut with the CSO, he would soon become Ravinia's music director, were absolutely mind-boggling. Even though I'd been avidly listening to recordings, live concerts, and radio broadcasts of live concerts by the group for four years, it was an entirely different experience hearing those fabulous sounds at close range from the vantage point of the stage and actually joining in with them as one of the offstage band players. The breadth and depth of the sound the solidity of the intonation and the rhythm and the musicality were amazing at close range and so very easy to fit into compared to the freelance ensembles in which I was accustomed to playing. Aside from being composed of less advanced players, these latter groups typically assembled only to do a single rehearsal and concert or a limited series of such services. Thus, there was never an opportunity for the musicians to play together on a daily basis over an extended period of time and to thus forge a unity of sound, intonation, and style. 
When I went downstairs to the locker room to change clothes after the Mahler concert, Ed Kleinhammer, the eminent bass trombonist who would later become my good friend, said, look at him, he looks dazed. I had similar personal reactions three weeks later when I performed as one of the offstage players on a performance of Verdi's Rigoletto under Cortez. From this summer on, Dory and I had a standing agreement about scheduling services as an extra player with the CSO. Whenever Roddy Law, the personnel manager and bass player, would phone while I was away practicing or on a gig and offer me a chance to play with the orchestra, Dory would accept the job, no matter what I already had on my schedule. I would then arrange a substitute player as needed for any conflicting freelance engagements. Playing with the Chicago Symphony, which I like to call the last big band in the loop, took precedence over any and all other gigs in town. There were few more exciting messages from Doree during that period than Roddy called today. When he had called to hire me for the Mahler concert, I had only one day to purchase a formal white coat for the performance. On such short notice, I was only able to find one for sale at a distant rental store, and that particular one had rather dramatic lapels trimmed with fancy white lace. For sentimental and humorous reasons, I continued to use that same white coat during my two years as an extra player with the orchestra, and later during my entire 18-year tenure as a member. Whenever any of my colleagues commented on it, I explained that it was left over from my earlier days of playing with the Latin Lizards. Shortly after Bud played the Hummel Concerto with the orchestra at Ravinia on July 8th, Dory and I both heard the rehearsal on the concert, sitting with Avis at the performance. He produced for me a copy of a pirated tape recording that an avid fan of his had made on a cassette machine during the concert. On the tape, Bud also included performances of the Purcell Sonata and the Haydn Concerto that he had done with the Lake Forest Symphony the previous January, as well as the Vivaldi Concerto for Two Trumpets that he and his colleague Vince Chikowitz had played with the CSO in May. These informal recordings were wonderfully inspirational teaching tools for me, which I played repeatedly at our apartment. I was tickled to note that during the Hummel performance at Ravinia, the rumble of the scheduled evening diesel train cruising through the park sounded like a long timpani roll in the background, which was perfectly timed and crescendoed to accompany the segue between the second and third movements of the piece and the exposition of the third movement. The symphony made its first European tour in the fall of 1971, led by Schulte, playing 25 concerts in 15 cities. During those several weeks, Dory and I house-sat for Bud and Avis, giving their home a daily inspection, watering the flowers, etc. During the Welcome Home ticker tape parade along LaSalle and State Streets downtown, we were pleased to receive and record on film Bud's personal wave of acknowledgement as the vehicles passed by us. In October, after the return of the orchestra, I passed the audition for membership in the Civic Orchestra of Chicago during its 1971-72 season. This ensemble had been founded in 1919 by Frederick Stock, music director of the CSO, to free his orchestra from the uncertainty of relying on European replacements by training American musicians in orchestral literature and discipline. It's the only training ensemble that is affiliated with a major American symphony orchestra. The well-rounded program of the Civic entailed two rehearsals each week in Orchestra Hall, plus weekly sectional rehearsals coached by the principal players of the CSO, along with providing tickets costing only $1 apiece for each Friday afternoon concert of the symphony. 
Six performances of the Civic were presented in Orchestra Hall each season, and various chamber ensembles from its membership played concerts regularly in schools throughout the Chicago region. The Civic trumpet sectional rehearsals, which Bud expertly conducted with a pencil for a baton, were extremely educational since all of the parts were being played and heard by each of us in the section. As he had done in my private lessons, Bud explained how our passages were to fit into the total orchestral picture, and he also discussed the various requests that many conductors had made concerning these passages over the years. Since I was now working on orchestral playing in these sessions within an entire trumpet section, Bud expanded the content of my private lessons at this time to also focus on etudes, Charlier 36 etudes, Walter Smith top tones, and Soxy 100 etudes, and a wide range of solo literature. The fees for these lessons during the regular season were paid by the Civic Orchestra, and Bud customarily taught the members of the Civic Section only during that season between October and May. However, from the time I moved to Oak Park until I departed for Germany, he taught me every two weeks without interruption in all seasons. During the summers, when the Civic Scholarship was not in effect, he and Avis gave me opportunities to work off the lesson fees, along with Doree's assistance. However, those work sessions at their house, which entailed such jobs as painting interior trim, scrubbing kitchen areas, and cleaning cupboards, were instead wonderful opportunities for me to hear the master doing his daily practice routines in the basement. In addition, the Herseths provided us with generous gifts for our services, such as fine wines, dinner at their home, etc. So there actually was no working off of any lesson fees at all, in spite of our protests. The brass quintet that five of us members of the Civic Orchestra formed, called the Chicago Brass Consort, was the first brass ensemble in which I had ever played. Over the course of the next two years, we rehearsed heavily and played myriad school performances, gigs at churches and other venues, and public concerts. Our programs, including trumpet solos and duets, quartets and quintets, were presented both unaccompanied and with organ accompaniment. This was a wonderful developmental experience for me, made all the richer by the coaching that both Bud and Ed Kleinhammer gave us occasionally. Neither the venues in which the consort performed nor the meager attendance at certain of the concerts hindered our musical growth. On one bitterly cold Sunday evening in January of 1972, after many weeks of diligent rehearsing, we performed an excellent program at a cozy greenhouse in Chicago. The entire audience consisted of the proprietor and his plants, along with one young woman from around the corner who had seen the posted flyers. Later inquiries revealed that we had unwittingly chosen Super Bowl Sunday as the date for this particular concert. In September 1971, I began taking classes to complete the remainder of my undergraduate degree at DePaul University in its high-rise building in downtown Chicago. The new campus on the near north side had not been constructed at this point. Shortly after moving from Michigan, I had visited the admissions and scholarship office at each of the major universities in the Chicago region to discuss the transfer of my three years' worth of credits from the University of Michigan and the availability of scholarship funds for completing my degree. DePaul had made the most generous offer, the complete coverage of all tuition and fees, in return for my playing lead in the school orchestra, so I accepted their offer. The drawback of attending this institution was that their program required a number of courses each year in the philosophy and religion department, which had not been part of my program at U of M. Thus, I was required to take a total of five classes within this department to make up for this lacking during my Michigan years, 
plus the usual music theory and literature classes to earn a music degree from DePaul. The trumpet instructor there at the time, a third-rate player of summer band concerts and occasional musicals, seemed intimidated at the prospect of giving me lessons. He indicated that I would not need to attend the scheduled lessons, and he would simply submit an A grade for me for each quarter. I must say that the quality of the DePaul music program has soared since my time there. The first Ross Beecraft, my colleague in the Civic Orchestra trumpet section, and now John Hagstrom from the Chicago Symphony, have both elevated the level of the offerings of the school immensely. During this time, I continued to listen a great deal to the playing of Bud and his colleagues, both live and on recordings, as my oral role models. Devouring the music on CSO records was a very typical form of evening entertainment for Durie and me. In addition, we were present virtually every time Bud played solos with the various community orchestras in the Chicago region. On one such occasion with the Oak Park Symphony, he announced to the audience before commencing a piece, Okay, start your tape recorders now and don't touch them again until the piece is over. He was a little irked by the commotion of listeners fiddling with their miniature machines, turning them on and off and changing cassette tapes during the course of his performances. After his solos, he was always gracious and modest in accepting compliments. In one instance, when Dury and I complimented him on his playing, he noted even a blind pig finds an acorn occasionally. In addition to avidly listening to the local stars, I also made it a point to hear the concerts of visiting orchestras from the U.S. and abroad, to note various other styles of playing and differing approaches to music making. On one occasion, during a performance by the Cleveland Orchestra, I was amazed at how very much the rather young lead trumpet was aided by his assistant on decidedly non-strenuous pieces. In addition, when the Los Angeles Philharmonic played in Orchestra Hall, I was amused at the excessively casual behavior of the trumpet players, with legs crossed and an arm draped across the back of the adjacent vacant chair while counting rests. They were apparently signaling to all listeners that they were very relaxed in spite of their playing in the home hall of the celebrated Chicago Symphony. It was also during this time that I heard Maynard Ferguson present a daytime clinic followed by an evening concert with his band. It was very exciting for me to finally hear a live performance by one of the prominent role models of my youthful days. One important aspect of the training that was offered to civic orchestra personnel was the chance to perform with the CSO when extra players were needed. In March of 1972, I was thrilled to play a week of rehearsals and concerts with the ensemble in Orchestra Hall, doing the world premiere of a new work by Moderna. This was my very first opportunity to play with the group in its downtown venue, and it was as inspiring as the Ravinia experiences had been during the previous summer. That spring, I also performed the Haydn Concerto with the DePaul Symphony and Orchestra Hall, and did the same piece with the Chicago City Symphony, as well as playing a program of solos with a piano accompaniment at the Chicago Cultural Center, all with coaching from the master. During the course of the summer, I played in the summer program of the Civic Orchestra and performed on stage as an extra player at two CSO concerts at Ravinia. I also presented my degree recital at DePaul with piano accompaniment on a very steamy July day for which Bud coached me on the solos and supportively attended both the gig and the celebration party afterward at our apartment on his day off from Ravinia. The following month, I played an opera festival in Beloit with colleagues from the Civic Orchestra. 
On the first day of the 1972-73 school year, the dean of the School of Music at DePaul informed me that my tuition scholarship had been rescinded to be given instead to a new entering freshman. So I paid the tuition myself for the remaining two quarters and refused to play in the school orchestra since my participation in that ensemble had been contingent upon my receiving a full tuition scholarship. Thus, I was receiving no private lessons from the staff there and was not performing in any school ensemble, yet I was finishing a degree in trumpet performance at that institution. During the fall, Gordon Peters, the conductor and administrator of the Civic Orchestra, held auditions behind a screen to determine which members of the ensemble would play the solo parts in Martin's Concerto for Seven Winds, Timpani, Percussion, and String Orchestra on the upcoming program. Based on these auditions, I was chosen from the trumpet section. In preparing to play the part for Bud and a lesson, I studied a tape of the live concert radio broadcast and the associated commercial recording of the piece that Bud and his colleagues had done under Gene Martinon some years earlier. In the process, I noticed that a triplet marking had been omitted from a figure of three thirty-second notes in the printed part in a complex passage in the second movement. In the CSO rehearsals, concerts, and recording session, Bud had read that particular figure along with the sixteenth note rest that preceded it as four sixteenths, and Martinon had not noticed this slight misreading. In my lesson, we chuckled about that minute oversight, and I thought to myself, what a track record to have missed one tiny item due to a printing error during the course of several decades of music making. From November to May during the 1972-73 season while playing with the Civic, I was elated to receive the call to be an extra player with the Chicago Symphony on a number of occasions. These included a Pops concert conducted by Fiedler and four memorable performances as an offstage player on Berlioz's Damnation of Faust with Schulte, including one concert in Carnegie Hall. Later, it was a real thrill to be part of the section while Bud wailed on the solos in Scriabin's Poem of Ecstasy in Chicago in Milwaukee and later to play a Pops concert and a Saturday night special performance. Near the end of the season, it was also a fine experience to play with the orchestra on two programs, doing Balshazar's Feast and Respighi's Roman Festivals. In each instance, the rehearsals and concerts offered me an opportunity to see and hear from the inside how the members of the Chicago Brass Section did their job, both at home and on the road. This aspect of the training that was afforded to the members of the Civic Orchestra was invaluable for my development. Unfortunately, for later members of the Civic, the doors to such experiences closed very shortly after my time in the training ensemble. The following year, while certain members of the Civic trumpet section were performing as offstage players on a Mahler symphony recording with Schulte, their playing required a number of retakes. In frustration, the maestro privately instructed Bud, please, no more students. Thus, the calls for extra musicians were thereafter directed to older established players in Chicago instead of the younger developing ones in the Civic Orchestra. My experiences in auditioning for professional positions began in January of 1973. At that time, there were some 33 symphony orchestras and six opera or ballet orchestras paying professional salaries in the U.S., However, a considerable number of these ensembles had short seasons and low pay scales, requiring considerable teaching to supplement the income, and many of them had less than stellar musical attributes. I had already decided that I would not leave the freelancing opportunities in Chicago to play and teach in a backwater locale. As a result, various of the openings which were advertised in the International Musician, the Union paper, were not of interest. 
However, I was interested when the National Symphony in Washington, D.C. announced a vacancy for the assistant first slash third position. In early January, each members of the civic section made our way to the Capitol for the audition. Feeling like a racehorse primed to run, I didn't get much sleep the night before the event while staying at the apartment of my old college roommate, who is now a school band director in a nearby Virginia suburb. None of the large number of candidates at the audition was pre-assigned a playing time. Instead, we were each assigned our order of playing in the order in which we arrived at the Kennedy Center. Likewise, no small rooms were made available to the candidates. We each staked out our individual place in one or two large rooms, in which cacophony reigned as the players warmed up and some foolishly ran through much of their solo and all of the excerpts on the list. As the day progressed, my civic colleague John DeWitt and I became two of the finalists, and he eventually won the job in the final round. Although I did not get the position, I was pleased to have become a finalist on my first time out. A few weeks later, auditions were held in Boston for the assistant first slash third slot there. Again, all of the myriad candidates were instructed to arrive at Symphony Hall at the same time on the same day, and we were assigned our sequence of playing based on the order in which we checked in. And once again, the assemblage of noisy trumpet players were all amassed in a large offstage room and in the adjacent hallways with no access to smaller rooms or any semblance of quiet for preparation. Near the end of the very long day of auditions, the personnel manager announced the names of the six candidates who had been chosen as finalists, including Tim Kent. However, he indicated that there were still about 10 candidates remaining to be heard. During the following couple of hours, two facts became very clear. First, the audition committee had predetermined the maximum number of finalists who would be invited to return at a later date for the second round. Second, a very favored student of the lead trumpet in the Boston Symphony was among the group of individuals who had not yet played when the list of finalists was announced. As a result, after the latter group of players had completed their auditions, the roster of finalists was revised so that Tim Kent was eliminated, having been replaced by a player from the last group of candidates. Although I was bitterly disappointed by this amateurish approach to holding auditions in the supposed big league, I was again pleased that I had been deemed finalist material. The following month, auditions were held in Milwaukee for a slot in the trumpet section there. In this case, the number of applicants was much reduced due to the lesser stature of the orchestra, but the same cattle call procedures were carried out with all of the candidates handled in herd fashion. During the course of the day, various of the players indicated to me that I was obviously the most advanced among the group of finalists. However, the outcome of the entire audition procedure there had apparently been prearranged, giving the job to the individual who had already been playing the position for some time in an informal substitute arrangement. There were no more openings of interest looming on the horizon, but I was determined to seek a full-time playing position, so I turned my attention to orchestras in Europe. The Office of the Civic Orchestra received each month an issue of Das Orchester, the publication of the Germans' Musicians' Union. In it appeared announcements of orchestra openings in Germany, as well as in certain other European countries, particularly France, Luxembourg, and Belgium. In late April, I applied to 12 German orchestras for an invitation to audition for their advertised trumpet opening. I did this by sending a letter of application a resume and various recommendations from Bud, the Civic Orchestra, and the Chicago Symphony, all translated into German by the Austrian-born parents of one of my students. 
Since it took considerable time for the magazine Das Orchester to arrive in Chicago by surface mail, and I was dealing with a number of old issues, and auditions in Germany were typically held about six weeks after the opening had been advertised, most of the auditions for which I was applying had already taken place. Three of the orchestras sent me a letter reporting that the position had been filled. Two indicated that I would be contacted at a later date, meaning if they didn't hire a German player in the first audition, and five did not bother to respond. I was invited to attend an audition of the Nordmark Orchestra in Flensburg. However, since this small ensemble did not pay well, I simply sent a tape recording of my playing to them. The one orchestra that did pay rather well, and which invited me to audition, was in Gelsenkirchen. In advance of my trip there, Bud coached me on the list of orchestral and operatic works that were to be prepared for the audition. After flying from Chicago to Luxembourg City via Icelandic Airlines at the end of May, with a short stopover en route in Iceland, I made my way to Gelsenkirchen by train. Without any skills in the German language, the activities of locating a hotel for the night, arranging transportation to the opera house, and playing the audition presented a bit of a challenge. In contrast to the large number of candidates at American trumpet auditions, there were only six of us present on this occasion, one each from six different countries, including one German. I was the only non-European there. It was on this day that I learned that, in nearly all instances, orchestras in Germany fill their vacancies whenever possible with German musicians. If a German candidate within the field of applicants is at all qualified to do the job, he or she will almost always be hired, irregardless of whether various of the foreign candidates are much more skilled as players. After the audition, I made my way to Kassel, Germany, where Rod Miller, my colleague from the civic trumpet section, had taken a prearranged position in the opera house a few months earlier. While waiting for the next issue of Das Orchester to be released, with its new slate of openings and for those auditions to take place, Rod and his family generously took me into their home for a month. During that time, I studied regularly with the bass trombonist of the Castle Opera, who played each year in the orchestra at the Wagner Festival in Beirut. He was very familiar with the manner in which German brass auditions were conducted, so he taught me how to win a position there using their ground rules. The entire preliminary audition for trumpets usually consisted of only the first portion of the first movement of the Haydn Concerto through the high D-flat, and within this context, a player had to demonstrate as many of his or her attributes as possible, including a strong lead trumpet orchestral style. The Germans played with and listened for a heavy tongue, so it would be advantageous to show this aspect of playing in the concerto, whether it was musically appropriate or not. Most of the listeners at an audition would be looking for a player who could produce all of the notes strictly as written, with minimal individualism or musical liberties. They would be interested in a candidate who played with strict rhythms, good dynamic contrasts, and only minute amounts of musical expression. Final audition material would include both orchestral and operatic excerpts, but it would be mostly drawn from the opera literature. The new issue of the German Union publication advertised open trumpet slots in four German orchestras to which I applied at the beginning of June. Three of the four sent me invitations, with the first of these auditions scheduled to take place in Trier on July 3rd. On this occasion, there were again about five or six of us participating, with each candidate being from a different country. Since there were no German players present, the judging would be based this time on musical attributes rather than on nationality. Thus, I won the audition. 
After indicating that I had been chosen for the position, the management hired me to sight-read the lead trumpet part on the opera performance that evening. This was not a final stage of the audition procedure, however, since I'd already signed my official employment contract for the next season. At dusk on the following evening, during the low-altitude approach of my plane to O'Hare Airport in Chicago, I was convinced that all those fireworks being blasted skyward from myriad communities below were in celebration of my having won my first professional position. After passing through the airport customs inspections with only a moderate amount of searching of my various horns and luggage, I excitedly met Dory at street level with a hearty embrace and placed my baggage into the trunk of the car. Immediately, two plainclothes agents took me by the arms and escorted me back into the building and downstairs to a small office. One asked, Before you enter your pockets and get searched, is there anything you'd like to tell us? After responding in the negative, I endured their rather personal search and was finally released. Apparently, I fit various of the profiles that such agents utilized in their work. This kind of treatment would become rather routine for me during the rest of my playing career in the U.S., and with each incident, I would be reminded of what brown and black individuals experience in our country on a daily basis. Two days later, Bud and Avis had us over for dinner at their home to hear the stories of my German adventures and to celebrate the outcome. Bud was very pleased with my success on the audition trail, which from my perspective indicated that many of the lessons that he had generously offered to me over the span of four years had been absorbed. However, he would be the first to assert that in spite of an individual having considerable natural talent and plenty of guidance along the way, that individual has to put out massive and ongoing effort and have considerable self-confidence to develop that talent into artistry and to continue to maintain and improve that artistry over the course of many years. Thinking that we were moving permanently to Europe, Dory and I sold many of our possessions and packed the remainder for shipment to Germany. We then traveled to Ravinia to hear Bud and his colleagues in the CSO Brass Quintet play a concert for a young audience, which included a concerto for Garden Hose featuring Bud. From Ravinia, we headed directly to Michigan for final goodbyes and a sightseeing tour through our home state. On August 15th, we finally departed for Europe. Just as our plane lifted off the runway at JFK International Airport in New York, I instantly thought of myself as a professional player rather than as a student. At that specific moment, at the age of 24, I had finally completed the initial stage of my development as a player, having been very heavily influenced and molded by Bud Herseth and the Chicago Symphony Brass Section during the previous six years. Their strong influence would also continue to steer my ongoing development over the course of many years into the future.